Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, Lord. We thank you for this Shabbat and this opportunity to gather together. Lord, I pray that as we open up your word today that you will speak boldly, clearly, and efficiently into our hearts and our lives, that you will open our hearts and our minds to receive from you, Lord, that we will walk out of here today knowing that you have met with us, that we've encountered you face to face as a man speaks to a man, as you describe having uh, uh, met with Moses so many times. Lord, I pray that you will breathe new life into us and that as we leave here today, we will leave here transformed and empowered for the world that we find ourselves in at this point in history. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen. So this week, we are reading Parsha Vayera, uh, which is Exodus 6-2 through 9-35, in which we read of the first seven of the ten plagues that are going to be cast or are cast on, uh, on Egypt. We closed out last week's Parsha with these words, and this is right after Moses went to, at the end of uh, Exodus 5, Moses goes back to the Lord uh, and says, you know, why did you send me here? You said you were going to deliver these people, and you haven't done any of that. You've only made it worse. What's wrong with you? And this was the Lord's response to him in Exodus 6.1. Adonai said to Moses, now you will see what I am going to do to Pharaoh. By way of a strong hand, he will let them go and drive them out of this land. Each of the plagues are interesting in their own right, and all ten are directly related to one of the deities of Egypt, through which Adonai is revealing to Egypt and to Israel that he is the only true God of all creation and that he is actively involved in his creation. With each of the first nine plagues, we see a momentary lapse in Pharaoh's strong-willed refusal to release Israel. He then begs Moses to make the plague stop, and then once the plague ends, his heart turns even harder against Israel, and he refuses to allow them to leave again. But today, we are going to focus on the first part of this Parsha, Parsha Vayera, uh, before the plagues begin and the reality of the suffering for the Lord. Uh, last week, we saw that when Moses and Aaron first approached Israel and told them what God was going to do for them, that they got excited. They immediately believed and worshiped the Lord. They assumed that God meant immediately. But as we discussed last Shabbat, God had a far greater big picture plan in the works. When Pharaoh first refused, he made the labor on the Israelites even harder than they were already experiencing being enslaved. And Israel lost heart. One of the main things we notice and see exemplified here is that it is easy to believe when things are easy. But how will we respond when the going gets tough? How will we respond when life gets complicated because of our faith? I think Moses and Israel both had a bit of an assumption that God was going to free them right away. But when Moses first approaches Pharaoh and he gets uh, a, a contrary response uh, from Pharaoh than he had envisioned, and the workload on Israel becomes much more burdensome, both Israel and Moses sort of lose heart. And Moses returns to God and cries out, out of, I truly believe, an honest, heartfelt pain that Moses had for the people of Israel. But he cries out in Exodus 5.22, Adonai, why have you brought evil on these people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought evil on these people. You have not delivered your people at all. Parsha Vayera, this week's Parsha, opens up with a very intense and very powerful response from the Lord to Moses. Beginning with verse 2, it says, of Exodus chapter 6, beginning with verse 2, it says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Adonai. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai. Yet by my name, Yodhe Vavhe, Adonai, did I not make myself known to them? 
Uh, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage where they journeyed. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of Bnei Israel, who the Egyptians are keeping in bondage. So I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to Bnei Israel, I am Adonai, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. I will take you to myself as a people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am Adonai, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and give it to you as an inheritance. I am Adonai. Moses spoke this way to Bnei Israel, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and cruel bondage. So Adonai told Moses, go speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he will let Bnei Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to Adonai, Bnei Israel have not listened to me. So how would Pharaoh listen to me? I who have uncircumcised lips. Keep in mind, God doesn't owe us any explanations at all when he tells us to do something. He most certainly didn't owe Moses any explanation when this all went down, but he gives one anyways. He gives Moses one of the most powerful responses we see in all scripture. One, of, one which becomes the foundation of the entire Passover Seder for millennia to come, what we call today the four cups. And this comes from Exodus 6, 6 through 7. Therefore say to Bnei Israel, I am Adonai, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am Adonai, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." Israel got extremely excited when they originally heard that the, that the God of their forefathers had heard their cries and had remembered them, that he was going to free them from slavery in Egypt. But when it didn't happen the first time Moses went to Pharaoh, they felt defeated. Their workload got worse, and they completely lost spirit, so much so that Moses lost spirit too. How many of us have felt like that before? The Lord gave us instruction to do something, and maybe our perspective of his time frame was a little off, and we got excited and just went full gun on it only to have it not pan out the way that we thought it was going to be, not pan out quite as rapidly as we thought it was going to be. And how often do we find ourselves in Israel's shoes where we are defeated, we are, are deflated, we, we can't quite justify what just happened. But here, the Lord not only reiterates his promise of freedom, but he expounds upon it even further. He tells them, it won't be easy and it won't be quick. Not because God doesn't have the ability to just make it happen, but rather, God is trying to show his supremacy to both Egypt and Israel. For all intents and purposes, up to this point, Israel had completely assimilated into Egyptian paganism. And the reality of this is no more obvious than when with the golden calf, which is something that happens after we're freed from Egypt. God didn't want to free, uh, God didn't want to free, Egypt, uh, free them from Egypt just uh, to, to just get half of Israel's heart. He wanted their full devotion to him. So he had to prove to Egypt and to Israel both that he is the one true and only God of all creation, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of their forefathers. But even after this powerful and awe-inspiring speech, Moses isn't quite filling it. Exodus 6, 9 through 12, we see Moses spoke this way to Bnei Israel, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and cruel bondage. So Adonai told Moses, go speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that, he, so that uh, he will let the people, let Bnei Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to Adonai, Bnei Israel have not listened to me. 
So how would Pharaoh listen to me, I who have uncircumcised lips? Moses still doesn't quite get the picture. He's brokenhearted, not because God hasn't freed Israel yet, but because Israel didn't listen to him. All of Israel, the people uh, uh, God is freeing, didn't, didn't, I'll learn to read one day. And if Israel didn't listen to him, the people God is trying to free through him, then why in the world would Pharaoh listen to him at all? So the, the remainder of this chapter, the Lord reminds Moses of, of exactly who he, Moses, really is. Not as much as Moses sees himself, but as God sees him. Adonai reminds Moses that he has set him apart for this exact purpose. He saved him from sure death in the basket in the river and protected him for years in Pharaoh's own household. He called out to him in the wilderness and brought him back to Egypt just for such a purpose. We talked last week about how often we don't see the bigger picture plan as God does. And because of this, we often act as, as though uh, everything is going to go exactly how we want it to be. But here's the thing. Moses and Israel were completely on board and sold out for trusting in God's miraculous freedom at the end of Exodus 4 when it was all theoretical. In theory, it was all easy. It was simple. They'd, there'd be no price for them to pay at all. Adonai heard our cries. He said he's going to free us from Egypt, and tomorrow Moses is going to Pharaoh, and we will be free. It's all easier to believe when we have no skin in the game. But what happens when things don't go according to their plan? What happens when it takes longer than expected? What happens when Pharaoh comes after us? Will we still be down on our knees and worship before the Lord? Or will we be standing boldly? an imaginary righteous anger wagging our fingers at God and angrily crying out, how could you? But here's the thing. God intentionally didn't tell them how he was going to deliver Israel. He never told them about the process or what it would look like or what exactly he would do to bring about his victory. He just told them they'd be free. They jumped to their own conclusions. And because their assumption didn't play out, they lost faith. They lost heart. They gave up on God instead of battening down the hatches and praying and worshiping more. God knows our hearts. He knows how we think. If he had relayed to Israel exactly how he would bring freedom to them to begin with, I don't think that they would have had the same response at all. I don't think they would have immediately fallen on their faces and worshiped before the Lord. If he had told them it was going to take months on end, and actually the Mishnah says that it took upwards of a year from the first time Moses went to Pharaoh until they finally left Egypt after the 10th plague. If, Moses, if, if, if the Lord had told them that it was going to take that long for them to finally leave Egypt, I don't think they would have responded the same way. If Israel had known they were signing up what they were signing up for uh, was going to be upwards of a year-long process to be freed, they probably would have responded differently. And when the going got tough, they definitely responded how their hearts truly felt. I think the same is true for the body of Messiah. How do you think the disciples and the early body would have responded had in Acts 1, when the heavenly beings who spoke to them after witness, after they witnessed Yeshua's ascension off of the Mount of Olives, if the, the, the uh, heavenly beings had said to them, hey guys, Stop standing here and staring, and around 2,000 years or so, you'll see Yeshua come back just as you saw him here. The early believers thought Messiah was coming back right away. They thought he was going to establish his eternal kingdom immediately. But alas, we still wait. 
in order for Adonai to follow through on his great judgments on Egypt and their gods, Israel was going to have to go through a little added suffering. God didn't want Israel to suffer more. He tells them that he has heard their cries and has remembered his covenant with their fathers, but Israel needed to see God's, dominant, God's dominion and authority more than anyone. I wholeheartedly believe that Adonai displays, uh, Adonai's display of power in the 10 plagues was less about forcing Pharaoh to drive Israel out and more about showing Israel that Adonai, their God, Adonai is one, as we read in the Shema, that there is no other God who can compare to him, that he is not only the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, but he is indeed the God of all creation. God is calling Israel out to be a light to the nations. How are we to serve in such a role if we are still wrapped up in the pagan beliefs of the nations themselves? Honestly, I think if uh, we were to summarize the message to Israel here in Exodus 6, 2 through 12 with a single simple phrase, it might be something like, be ready or be prepared. In fact, when we get to the final plague, this is exactly what the Lord says. Be ready because as soon as this happens, you need to be walking out the door and ready to go. God promised freedom to Israel and, and he meant it, but that freedom would come at a great cost. That freedom was not intended to be overnight and it was not intended to be is, uh, easy. And although Israel didn't expect it or know it, they would have some skin in the game by the time it was all said and done. God was about to do something world-changing, something that would not only be for the benefit of Israel, but ultimately the whole world. But it wasn't going to be easy for Israel. Egypt already saw Israel as an enemy, hence their enslavement. After Moses' initial encounter with Pharaoh, their fear of Israel became even greater, and they tightened their grip on them even more. And then, through God, though God, uh, and even though God did not want Israel to suffer any farther, he knew that, that, that that is exactly what would happen as he brought them freedom through great judgment on Egypt and the gods of Egypt. As believers in Messiah, we live with the same reality. We have been freed from the bondage of slavery to sin, and that freedom was bought by a miraculous show of God's sovereignty over the whole world and the death burial, resurrection, and ascension of Yeshua. And just as we said, with Israel being freed from slavery in Egypt, it would come at a great cost. It came at an even greater cost for you and I to be freed from slavery to sin. And while we await our ultimate freedom in the Olam Haba, in the world to come, the eternal kingdom of Messiah, we still have to, to dredge through the day-to-day -day realities that the world around us, much like Egypt and Israel, distrust us. They are fearful of us. And they don't like us. But as Yeshua says, it isn't us per se that they don't like. It is he who lives within us. And despite all of that, while we wait on Messiah's triumphal return, we are called to be a light to the nations. We are called to carry the, chain, the charge of the Great Commission until our dying breath or Messiah's return, whichever comes first. And throughout the scriptures, we are given all sorts of forewarnings of what lies ahead of how terrible things will ultimately become. The ten plagues will be nothing on the reality of what will happen in the coming future as God shows his sovereignty as he did in Egypt, but on a far greater global scale. Yet, the message to you and I today, the message to the body of Messiah for the past 2,000 years still rings true and is still just as simple as the two words, be ready. Matthew 24, 4 uh, says, Yeshua answered them, be careful that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and will lead many astray. 
You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must happen, but it is not yet the end. For nations will arise against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms, and there will be uh, famines and earthquakes in various places, but all these things are only the beginning of birth pains. Then they will hand you over to persecution and will kill you. You will be hated by all the nations because of my name. And then many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray because lawlessness will multiply. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. I encourage you to take some time over the coming days to read and reread Matthew 24. Dig into the presence of the Lord, asking him for deeper insight, and more so asking him for the strength and courage to face what is coming, for a bolstering of his Ruach HaKodesh, of his Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives, so that we may stand true, we may stand bold, and we may be ready. I have said for years that with each passing year of my life, these warnings Yeshua gives in Matthew 24 become more and more of a frightening reality. I won't pretend to be able to predict when Messiah will return or even how much longer we have before that occurs. But what I will say is, albeit Yeshua says no one knows the hour except the Father, we are given signs and times and seasons all throughout Scripture to help keep us alert and ready to be, and, and call, to call us to be ready. Let's read Yeshua's words here again, Matthew 24, 4 through 14. Yeshua answered them, Be careful that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and will lead, you, and lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, so that you are not alarmed. For this must happen, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. But all these things are only the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will hand you over to persecution and will kill you. You will be hated by all the nations because of my name. And then many will fall away and will be betrayed and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray because uh, lawlessness will multiply. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But the, uh, this good news of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. How many of you feel like every time you mistakenly, idiotically turn on the news, that you're watching Matthew 24 play out before your eyes. This is the reality we live in. All right, I'm not saying Yeshua's coming back tomorrow or next week or five years from now or 100 years from now, but Yeshua's return is imminent. And we're watching as these birth pains mentioned in Matthew 24 are beginning, if not have been in works for at least a decade plus now. And we're watching as things speedily progress from here. I won't pretend to say with any certainty when exactly Messiah's return will be, but as I said a moment ago, I will say without a doubt, it is imminent. In my 38 years of life, I have witnessed the world rapidly change. I have witnessed prophecy uh, appear to speed up. I keep being drawn back time and time again to Matthew 24. And yes, there are so many more end-time prophecies that are of vital significance, but I keep being drawn back to Matthew 24. These words directly from Yeshua to his disciples on the Mount of Olives are a key to the very reality of what we are talking about today. 
God is once again, as he did with Israel in our Torah Parsha, calling his people to be ready and to be alert. In fact, I would suggest that this message has never changed for the people of God. Every generation since John's pending revelation have thought that their time was the time, that Yeshua would return in their lifetime. Thus, thus far all have been wrong, but one day someone will be right. One day he will return. But it is clear here in Matthew 24 that Yeshua is warning us that before he returns, things will get much, much worse. That things are going to be terrible and difficult for the body. That the world will once again turn its back on us. Heck, that our own brothers and sisters and Messiah will turn against us. So we need to be ready. Obviously, we all know that there are great disagreements over things like pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, and so on and so forth. And while I have my own thoughts and opinions on the matter, I will not be going into that right now. But I did bring it up because of this. One of the primary keys to being ready, especially being ready for a move of God, is to be in unity. When we are divided over something like this, which oddly enough, both sides tend to use similar scriptures to back their opinion, which means we're arguing over the same scriptures from different perspectives. And not to mention, none of those perspectives are salvational issues. It is a subpar reality for the body of Messiah to be divided like this. When we do this, when we argue, when we are divided, when we serve in disunity and discord, when we allow the enemy to infiltrate our ranks and sow discord and disunity into our midst, the body of Messiah is weakened. Our operational readiness, if you will, is not up to par. Division is what the enemy wants because he knows division weakens the body of Messiah. Readiness and unity is what the Lord wants. And these things, we can be strengthened. As I prepare to close, I'd like to ask our worship team to go ahead and make their way back up to the stage. We like to pretend like being in the USA, though we are shrouded and protected from a lot of stuff going on in the world. I think the body of Messiah in America to some degree has attached almost a promised land mentality to this country. And because of that, we have for far too long fooled ourselves into a misplaced comfort. But for at least the past couple of decades, and, and definitely probably before that, we have begun to see things change all around us. Yet, we have tended to dig into this false sense of security more and more day by day. We have relied on the Constitution to protect us, and because it gives us freedom such as freedom of religion, yet we've sat idly by while that very freedom has been slowly hacked away from us little by little. If the current political and social climate in the U.S. can teach us anything, it is that we are experiencing at the very least the early stages of the birth pains. Yeshua speaks of in Matthew 24. We have a choice to make, and it is a vital choice. We face the same choice given to Israel in Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 and 20. I call the heavens and the earth to witness about you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore, choose life so that you and your descendants may live by loving Adonai your God and listening to his voice and clinging to him. And the key to this choice is to not fear. Not to fear and cower to the world around us and social pressures. Not to fear the challenges that lie ahead. Not to fear the reality of what the end times and birth pains will be like. Chazak, chazak, as we see, as we say every time we close out 
one of our Torah parshas, our Torah uh, books of the Torah, and our Torah cycle. Chazak, chazak, beni chazek. Be strong, be strong, and let us be strengthened. Because I honestly and wholeheartedly believe that we have a responsibility and an obligation to preach the gospel, to bring freedom and deliverance to the lost and despaired, to be to, to shine the light of Messiah in this dark world until the very end. Yeshua says in Matthew 24, 13 and 14 again, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Just before this, uh, in, in Yeshua's words uh, in Matthew 23, 39, uh, Matthew 23, he says, but this one, the one who, in, forget that, Matthew 23, verse 39, my uh, uh, notes here, it didn't copy paste over properly. You can go look that up. Uh, but in Matthew 23, 39, he says something powerful. You should go look it up. Uh, during, during worship this morning, we sang, make us one, but our very own, by our very own worship leader, Lynn Huey. This song is based off of Yeshua's prayer in John 17, 20 to 23, which says, I pray not on behalf of these only, but also for those who believe in me through their message, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. So also may they be one in us, so the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. We, the body of Messiah, have attempted long enough to fulfill Messiah's call of the Great Commission, broken and divided. But if we are going to be strong enough, if we are going to be bold enough, we are going to be ready for the days to come, we must be in unity. And as we face the days that lie ahead of us, as we watch Yeshua's words from Matthew 24 become reality right before our eyes, the Lord is still proclaiming the same words over us as he did to our forefathers in Exodus 6, 6 through 8. I am Adonai, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. I will take you to myself as a people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am Adonai, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and give it to you as an inheritance. I am Adonai. So let's get ready. Let's remain ready, because even though what lies ahead of us will not be the easiest of times, we do have literally the greatest harvest awaiting us. The workers are few, but the harvest is ready. So we need to answer the call. We need to be ready no matter what. And it is easy to believe. It is easy to think we're ready when things are easy. But how will we respond when the going gets tough? How will we respond when life gets complicated because of our faith? And how will we respond when life gets complicated for our faith? The call of God on the body of Messiah has been the same for thousands of years. To be ready, to be prepared, to be alert, to keep an eye on the signs and times of the season so that when things do occur, we know what is happening and we are ready because no matter what, and, and I don't care if you're pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, whatever, I always jokingly stealing from my, my father, I jokingly say I'm tri-trib. Whatever happens, I'm going to try and make it. It really doesn't matter. Uh, but none of that really matters because those are our ideas of what God's going to do, right? None of that matters. 
What matters is until the very moment that either we die or we meet our Lord and Savior face to face, we have a burden, we have a call, a mandate from the Lord to preach the good news no matter what, to bring the Great Commission to life, to reach the lost, to bring freedom and deliverance to those in bondage to in slavery to sin. We have a, a, a divine ordinance on our lives to make sure that we cause the biggest disruption possible to the goals that the enemy has as we wait the return of Messiah. And there will come a day, maybe in our day, there will come a day where we will see the reality of what the disciples staring off into the clouds in Acts 1 hoped that they would see in their day. We will see the day when the feet of Messiah will return to the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives will split in two. And when that day comes, we better be ready. Leading up to that day, we better be ready because there is a harvest, as Yeshua says, there is a great harvest that is awaiting us. The workers are few, not because there aren't many people in the body of Messiah, but because we're too stinking lazy, too stinking divided, and too stinking broken, and too stinking wrapped up in our own mess, and our own pains, and our own anxiety, and our own issues. Or we're too wrapped up in trying to make sure that us and ours are taken care of. But it's time that we recognize that we've got to put skin in the game. We have got to understand that we're a part of God's plan. And that God wants to use us in great and mighty ways for the glory of his kingdom and the name of his salvation, Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking into our hearts and our lives each and every day as we open your word. Lord, I pray that you will continue to put a burden on our hearts to be in your word day in and day out, to be in prayer and worship before you, to be in fasting regularly, Lord, to be gathering together in prayer faithfully. Lord, I pray that you will move mightily and powerfully in our lives, that you will overcome us as it says you did with Saul and David and Solomon, that you will overcome us with your Ruach HaKodesh, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, that we will be empowered, that we will be ready, that we will be strengthened in you for the job and the task that you have laid before us to go into all nations proclaiming the truth of your salvation and immersing the nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you'll move mightily and powerfully among us and that you will continue to build and bolster our faith in you, that we won't shy aside because it didn't happen the way we thought it was going to or the way we wanted to, but that instead we will stand boldly and firm in you, knowing that no matter what we hope will happen or how, that you are in control and that we will trust faithfully that you are doing exactly what you need to do for your plan, for your purpose, and for your people. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen.